0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Oh, Good morning, I'm Adam. Uh, My wife, Laura, and I have been team members here at Seabreeze for almost 11 years, and this morning we're wrapping up our series on transformation in Christ, and that term comes from our mission statement here at Seabreeze, which is thoughtfully inviting broken people to experience transformation in Christ. And this mission informs everything we do here at Seabreeze, and we use that term transformation in Christ. But what does that mean? Like, what is it exactly we're hoping for people to experience when we say that? Well, I would describe it as change from the inside out. You know, in our culture, we've gotten pretty good at trying outside-in change. So plans, programs, resolutions, stuff we do on the outside that we're hoping, if we can stick with it, it'll change who we are on the inside. But uh, as you may have noticed, we have mixed results with that at best. You may have already given up on a New Year's resolution, or if you're me, too. um, But inside-out change is different. That kind of change comes from the living God who works inside of you, gradually, faithfully, tinkering with your heart to shift your priorities and your perspectives. And that brings real, lasting change from the inside-out. We've been using the diagram of the wheel to understand how these practices work together to help us transform. Uh, Christ is the hub, he's the source of the power, and nothing in this diagram has any power apart from him. And when we see his power start flowing through those spokes into the rim of obedience to God, uh, that's when we start to see real progress. And the spokes of this wheel are are disciplines that, as we are consistent with them, they help us nurture our friendship and intimacy with God. And over time, that leads to inside-out transformation. Not to be transformed into just a better version of ourselves, but transformed to be more like Him. That's the goal. And this week, we wrap up the series by talking about serving. So why do we need a sermon about serving? Like, everybody agrees service is good. People of every religion think service is good. People of no religion think service is good. So why do we need a sermon about service? Why is serving one of the key ways that we nurture our friendship with God? I mean, we put it on the same level as prayer and Bible study. So how does it help us change from the inside out? Because service is about more than just helping out, doing our part, paying it forward, Service—it's uh, not something that all people, especially Christians, are just supposed to do. Service is an expression of God's heart. Okay, service is an expression of God's heart. Service is at the core of who He is, and because of that, God places an enormous value on service. He calls His followers to serve, and He's wired the whole world to work better when people serve each other and sacrifice for each other. And when we serve, we have an opportunity to reflect who God is and communicate who he is to each other and to the world. So this is a picture of two tuning forks. And well, there you go, all right. Uh, You might remember this experiment from like a junior high science class, right? But here's how it works. If you strike the tuning fork on the left, it vibrates, right, it makes a sound. And if the second tuning fork on the right is close enough to the first tuning fork, it will start to vibrate at the same frequency as the first tuning fork, and they make the same sound. And the technical term for for this, for you musicians, is is resonance, right? The second tuning fork vibrates as the same frequency of the first, and they make the same sound. They harmonize. So we serve to harmonize with God is how you can think of it. We serve to harmonize with God. That's the first point in your handout. Because we are made in God's image, we're designed to resonate with God, to be influenced by him and to be like him. And the closer we get to him, the more we invest in our friendship with him, the more our values and priorities start to sync up with his. And because God is a servant, as we serve, we're harmonizing with him and communicating who he is to the world. So to illustrate this, we're going to look at two scenes from the life of Christ, and the first is roughly six months into his ministry. So Jesus has gathered a few disciples, he's performed a few miracles, but he hasn't yet publicly explained who he is or what he's doing. So he travels to his hometown of Nazareth, and while he's attending synagogue there, uh, he stands up and he reads a passage of scripture from the prophecy of Isaiah, which was written about 700 years earlier and is now part of what we call the Old Testament. And the gospel of Luke tells a story in chapter four. So this is what Jesus stands up in church to read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus then stops reading, he sits down, and listen to what he says next. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's his way of saying, That's me. You know, I'm, I'm fulfilling that prophecy. And this wasn't some obscure passage from a, some obscure prophet. That This was Isaiah. People in the room, they would have known this passage probably since they were kids, and they would have known what it meant, that it referred to the Messiah, God's anointed, who God was going to send to restore and rescue Israel. And here is the son of Joseph the carpenter standing up in church saying, that's me, I'm the one you've been waiting centuries for. And uh, if you're wondering how this went over with this crowd, about seven verses later, they try to throw him off a cliff. So, not well. But here's the question Why did he choose this passage? I mean, why this one? There are literally hundreds of passages in the Old Testament that Jesus could have stood up and read that day and said, That's about me. Verses about his, his authority, his majesty. His victory over death, you know, crushing the head of Satan, leading the host of angels, all these amazing things, big glorious things. But instead, he goes public by identifying himself as a servant, right? That's who I am. I'm here for the poor, the captives, the oppressed. I'm here to lead people into friendship with God. That's who I am. And he's going to spend the rest of his time on earth showing us that that's who we should be also. So fast forward three years, this is the second story. He's walking down the road with his 12 disciples, and they're headed to Jerusalem for Passover. And what the disciples don't know is that five days from this point, Jesus is going to be arrested, put on trial, and publicly executed. Jesus, of course, knows all this. And right before they enter Jerusalem, a fight breaks out among the disciples about who's more important and who's going to have special status in heaven, right? Who's going to sit at your right-hand side, Jesus? And listen to how Jesus responds in the gospel of Mark chapter 10. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. Well, that breaks up the fight real quick. And he says, y'all are thinking like earthly rulers You're thinking, what can I gain from this? Like, how can I advance my interests? Don't think like them. Think like me. I came to serve, and I'm about to perform the greatest act of service in human history. And that's a powerful call to serve right there. It it just leaves the question hanging, right? If Jesus came to serve, then what's my excuse? Just kind of leaves it there. And we could leave it there, but if we really want to understand this passage we have to ask about this term, son of man. Okay, son of man. What, what does that mean? Well, from the context, it seems pretty clear he's referring to himself, but that's an odd phrase, right? So, uh, well, Jesus uses this term to refer to himself constantly. Over 100 times in the Bible, you read Jesus referring to himself as the son of man. And to tell you the truth, for years, I didn't understand this. So I was a new Christian, I was reading the Bible, and I'm thinking, the whole point of this book is this guy is the son of God, and he's walking around calling himself the son of man. That, that seems like the opposite. I don't, I don't understand this. But in Jesus' day, this was a very loaded term. Okay? Like that passage from Isaiah, people knew exactly what it meant. And it's loaded because of another Old Testament prophecy. This one from Daniel, who you may remember from the lion's den situation. And the book of Daniel recounts a very strange vision that Daniel had around 500 B.C. That's what the book of Daniel says. With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all the peoples, the nations, and languages would serve him. His dominion is a dominion without end that will not cease, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So you see the weight the term son of man, had in Jesus's culture. Generations of Jewish believers had grown up hearing about the son of man. He, he's like a folk hero. He's the Jewish Superman, okay? He's a this divine conqueror whose authority comes from God himself, and his kingdom will never end. And Jesus has been calling himself this for three years. So again, no wonder they wanted to kill him. But here, near the end of his time on earth, he brings it home, and he says, listen, guys, the Son of Man, He came to serve. I didn't come to conquer or dominate. I didn't come to overthrow Caesar. I came to serve, and there is no greater act of service than Jesus, the Son of God, stepping down from the glory of heaven to walk among us and lay down His life for us. And because Christ set that example for us, When we serve, we have an opportunity to sync up with the heart of God, to be in harmony with him, communicating who he is to the world. And this is about more than volunteering, okay? This is an attitude and an orientation for everything we do in life, okay? When you change a diaper at 3 in the morning, when you have to clean out the stove, when you have to take the car to get smogged, like everything we do, even the work you're paid to do at your job, and most of these hassles of everyday life are opportunities to either make someone's life better or bring chaos into order, which is what God does. So I can handle my responsibilities with sighs and groans and resignation. Oh, I'm going do this again. Or I can choose to reflect on the fact that I follow the God who didn't come to be served, but to serve. And in my experience, When I choose reflection over grumbling, I find that I can serve with joy in even the most tedious and anonymous tasks. Now, my father-in-law likes to say that everyone wants to be thought of as a servant, but no one wants to do the dishes. Um, Certainly true of me. I think of that when I wash dishes. Now, because none of us were born with servant hearts. We were all born instinctively knowing how to scrap to protect ourselves and our interests. So, I have three kids. And I have never once had to set a kid down and say, listen, these are your Legos. You got these Legos for your birthday, and if someone tries to play with them, you can't put up with that. You have to fight. These are yours. Like, I've never had to have that conversation. That, that's our default setting, right? And as adults, we're just much more sophisticated in what we're willing to go to the mat for. So hopefully, uh, we're not fighting over Legos, but if someone doesn't treat us with the respect and deference we deserve, or we think we deserve, whew, that can undo us. That's how we end up on YouTube, yelling at cashiers and fighting over parking places. right? triggered. Okay? We're all born with that reflex of selfishness. And that reflex is really hard to rewire without God's help. But if you're a Christian, that is exactly what God is offering to do. But in my experience, again, he doesn't do it in a vacuum, he does it as we lean into opportunities to serve. I had a friend in college named Sean, and Sean was tall, really tall. He was like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, something like that, maybe taller. And what do you think was one of the first questions people would ask tall Sean when they met him? Hey, you play basketball? You know, want to join our intramural team? And Sean would answer, no. And this confused people. How could such a tall person just not play basketball? That shouldn't be allowed. And they would ask him, why not? And Sean would just shrug and answer, because I hate basketball. <laughs> well, people were outraged, right? They, they just could not handle this. They could not believe that someone with an obvious genetic advantage for basketball would just choose to not play basketball. And, it just seemed, and occasionally, someone would actually tell Sean, you're a waste of tall. Which yeah, that, that that hurt his feelings, you know. But like tall Sean, Christians have a genetic advantage—not not for basketball, but for service—and we shouldn't just shrug it off and say, "Huh, not interested." If you've committed to following Christ, if that light has been switched on in your heart to see that God is real and that you need Him, the Bible says you're reborn right? You're a, you're a new creation. You've got new spiritual DNA, okay? So if you're a Christian and you're not, you're not serving, you're not participating in the ministry in some way, you have untapped genetic potential, okay? So don't squander that. Service isn't just a good thing that Christians are supposed to do. It's who God is, and it's, it's what he set us apart for when he saved us. <clears throat> now, some of us in this room serve a lot, we volunteer on Sunday mornings. We stack chairs after events. We we, we bring dinner to our friends when they're sick. We help people move. Uh, We're always serving. So we can just tune out, right? Just finish our coffee? No. Because the roots of that default selfishness can still creep into our hearts, it just plays out a little different. Instead, we can find ourselves doing all the things we're supposed to do, but completely adrift from the purpose. Just checking the box instead of savoring that opportunity to harmonize with God. So we get complacent, we get passive, we start feeling annoyed and put out whenever we hear about a need or when it's our week to serve and whatever we're doing. And that's almost worse than not serving at all. So point number two in your handout is for those of us who do serve, but who tend to miss the point and make it more about ourselves than about God, We serve to share in Christ's mission. We serve to share in Christ's mission. If we were on Family Feud, and uh, the survey was famous acts of service, I think one of the top results would probably be Jesus washing the disciples' feet. This is a well-known story. Even people with no interest in following Jesus will point to this as a wonderful example of how to serve with love and humility and to meet practical needs and serve even when the work seems like it's beneath us. And that's certainly true. That's very true. But there's there's more to it than that in this story, particularly with Peter, who's one of the 12 disciples. So Peter is famous for being rash and impulsive and putting his foot in his mouth. And throughout the Gospels, Peter does show a real devotion to Jesus. But the problem is Peter wants to do things on his own terms. So he jumps into every situation, knowing exactly how it should be, and he is ready to tell people. Um, In fact, when Jesus calls Peter to join him as a disciple, Peter says, I'm too sinful, go away. So just like us, he kind of has a way of missing the point. So we find this story in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, before Jesus is arrested. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, Well, Peter's response kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if one of the pastors walked up to you and said, hey, can I wash your feet? Like, how would you respond? No, no, thank you. That's like, you would understand the symbolism of the gesture, right? But we don't really need to take it that far. Like, I get it. No, thank you. But listen to how Jesus responds to Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. (coughs) Peter, you're missing the point. You think you're honoring me, but really you're making this more about you than about me. We need to do this on my terms, not yours. Well, credit to Peter. He gets it together and he changes his mind. But what does Jesus mean to have share with? Why does that make Peter turn on a dime? Well, think of it like shares of stock. If you buy shares in a company you now have a level of commitment and sense of unity with that company that the general public doesn't have. So this is is a chart showing Tesla's stock price over the last six months, and it has been a wild ride. And you might look at this and think, oh, how interesting, I wonder how that happened. You may even have opinions, strong opinions, about how that happened. But if you own shares in Tesla, Oh man, you don't just have opinions. You have painfully felt every dip in this chart because you have share in the company. You're tied to its outcome and the decisions of its leaders, all right? And that is what Christ is offering, a share with him. He's not looking for fans. He's looking for shareholders, people invested in the purpose and outcome of his mission. That's the mission of rescuing broken people, uh, the mission of inviting them to experience transformation. That's our mission here at Seabreeze, not because we think it's catchy, but because we believe that was and still is Christ's mission, and we're invested in that. Okay, but why does Peter need to let Jesus wash his feet to have a share with him? Why is that a deal-breaker? Well, it reminds me of something that we talk about a lot here at Seabreeze. How do we move from true to real? Okay? How do we move from seeing God as true in the abstract to real? Something that really drives our decisions, that informs our desires in real time. How do we make that move? Now, Jesus could have sat there and said, Listen, guys, you need to be willing to serve people. You even need to be willing to, I don't know, Wash people's feet, for example. You should do that sort of thing. And the disciples would have said, oh, yeah, interesting. Service, humility, yeah, yeah, we we get it. And the value of service would have been true, but it wouldn't have been real. But if the disciples actually feel the hands of God in the flesh, the Son of Man on their dirt-encrusted feet, that's real. I think that would really change a person. And if Peter wants to have a share with Christ, if he's going to serve people and lead the church for the next 30 years, Jesus knows it needs to be real. So Peter can't just politely decline. Well, what does that mean for us centuries later? We don't have the benefit of this experience. How does the value of service become real to us? Well, I think God just leaves us to ponder the scandal of this event, that the God who knit these feet together in the womb, and who sustained every molecule of these men for their lives up to this point, and who created every speck of dust and grime in their feet, that same God in the flesh now stoops down to his knees to clean them, to clean feet. And that's who I claim to follow, right? So what does that mean for me? One of the first Sundays that Laura and I visited Seabreeze, Pastor Dale Graham got up on stage and he announced that the kids' ministry was looking for new volunteer teachers. And I thought that seemed like a good way to plug in and meet people. So 11 years later, I'm still teaching in the kids' ministry. But a few years ago, uh, I considered quitting because I teach the younger boys' class, which is ages 5 through 2nd grade, and our class at this time had balloons to over 20 kids. So, it were, I mean, 23, 24 kids in a Sunday morning. And that many boys who had just been given a donut <laughs> in a room that small, this is in the old building, much smaller space than we have now. I mean, my co-teacher and I just felt besieged. We would just finish every class like, I can't believe we even survived. Uh, I, and I didn't feel like the lesson was getting through to them. And I began to feel like I was just a a babysitter. Not a teacher, a babysitter. So I considered quitting. So one day after church, I was griping and whining about this to my wife, and I said, I don't even feel like a teacher anymore. I just feel like a babysitter. You know, really getting my pout on. And uh, you know what she said to me? She said, what's wrong with being a babysitter? (laughs) Uh, Well... Nothing's wrong with being a babysitter. That just rebooted my brain. And then she went on to say, "Yeah, look, isn't it worth it for parents to be able to come in here and, 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 and worship and hear the message without distraction because they know their kids are, are safe and cared for? Like, like, what if that is God's priority for you? Maybe that's what he wants most from you. So I had lost sight of the mission. See, I'm like Peter. It needs to be this way, my way, or I'm out you know? I was serving on my terms, not God's. And my terms were, I want to see a room full of six-year-old boys sitting quietly in rows, <laughs> just like y'all are. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> Listening with rapt attention to every word I say. And otherwise, what's the point? I'm going home. And I wanted that in no small part because it would be validating to me personally, as in I'm the hero, teacher of the year, right? You get a plaque and everything. Like, That's what I was going for. But God's terms were different, and He gets to choose. And God's terms seem to be, to the best I understand them, that I am to teach the lesson the best I can, lovingly engage the kids, make paper airplanes, build Legos, whatever, and then give them back to you in one piece. That's it. that's, That's my job. Do they absorb the lesson? I really do my best, parents. I really try. But that's up to God, okay? Um, I have to leave that to him. And even when I succeed on those terms, I'm still just one cog on the full gear that is the kids' ministry every Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, there's like 30 people there, all working. And even in the kids' ministry, that's just one gear of this amazing machine that God operates every Sunday morning. And all of us, all of us gears working together, we have a share in this mission of helping people experience transformation in Christ. So we serve primarily because God is a servant and because it is a privilege to join him in his mission, but God is also offering a very real reward for serving in the ministry. We serve for the reward of community. We serve for the reward of community. As we serve in the church, our sense of unity with the church deepens, and our community grows and deepens along with it. That's a real reward that God offers. So going back to our wheel diagram, that's why we need the vertical and the horizontal spokes. The power of Christ to change flows through both. And that's challenging for an introvert like me. I'd be perfect to be left alone with just the vertical. Let me read the Bible. Let me pray. I'm good. I don't need other people. But I can't ignore this theme that's woven through the entire Bible, particularly the New Testament, the importance of the community among the people of God. And when the Bible talks about community, it's usually woven in with the idea of service. Just like Bevan talked about last week, we all have a part to play, a function that we're designed to uniquely fulfill. And then the New Testament book of Ephesians Paul tells us this in chapter 4. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working together properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love the body grows together as a whole. How? As each part works properly, as it performs the functions that God designed for it, using the gifts that God gave us to serve the church. So this is a picture of lab-grown meat. Looks good, doesn't it? You just want to fire up the Traeger? All right? So apparently, it is scientifically possible for muscle cells, I guess, that's what that is, to grow and replicate on their own in isolation. And that's what you get. But you're not lab meat, right? You weren't created to grow and thrive in isolation in a Petri dish, under a lamp, on a shelf somewhere. You were designed to grow as people support you and as you support other people. Going back to our verse... The body grows as it builds itself up in love. And that last part is crucial, in love. This isn't an Amazon warehouse, okay? We're not just bustling around trying to meet quotas and satisfy metrics. Those of us who are serving together and using the gifts God gave us really are growing in this bond of our community. And one thing I've noticed over the years is that when people come to Seabreeze for the first time, one of the first things they notice is this hive of activity out here on a Sunday morning, right? The, the donuts, the greeters, the, the, the kids' ministry. They love it. They, they love the energy. They love that it makes them feel so welcome and valued, so they keep coming back. But what I've seen happen is that people will attend for a few months and then start to feel like they're not getting much traction. They don't feel like they're really making friends or becoming part of the community. Well, I would put it like this. Here at Seabreeze, the path to community is like a train track, okay? It's got two rails, connecting a group and volunteer on a team. Connecting a group and volunteer on a team. We tend to not have a lot of social events that are just for members to socialize. We do have some, don't get me wrong, we have some, but most of our social events are designed to bring people in, okay? We're here for the people who aren't here. Instead, at Seabreeze, we primarily grow in our community and our friendships by serving together and by being in small groups together. And when people only do one or neither, it tends to take them longer to feel like they're part of the community. And when I think of the families that Laura and I are doing life with, raising our kids with, starting to get old with, um, it's not people we just struck up a conversation with on a Sunday morning. Okay? It's the people we've served with. It's the people we've been in groups with. That's our community. That's our church family. So look, it may seem like I'm trying to recruit you, which I am, um, but mostly I want to encourage you with what, as best I can tell, the Bible says is good for your soul, that you were designed to thrive as you serve as part of the church, and I hope you won't pass on that. So if you're looking for a place to jump in and serve, we have a way to do that. If you have a Seabreeze app, there is a button. Oh, there's my video. All right. Um, A button that says volunteer. And tap that and it will take you to this list. That's all the teams you can join right there. Um, And I asked around, and we currently have 91 open slots throughout those those teams. Somewhere on that list, one of those slots, there is a need that God has wired you to fulfill. So I hope you'll jump in with this. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord God, thank you that you have set the pace, that you came to serve. That's, that's who you are, that's what you do, that's you, you create, you teach, you listen, you sacrifice, and you serve. And that's, that's who we claim to follow, as a servant. So pray that you would um, just lead us to wherever you would have us some way that we can serve here in the ministry and also make our whole lives about service, about putting others' interests ahead of our own and looking to honor you and how we handle even the most tedious responsibilities of everyday life because you are a servant and we love you and we're so thankful for your mission to rescue us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, SeabreezeChurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.